to be named later. The Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by dd.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 117. I'm Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, welcome into the podcast, hey, I, everyone. I'm already out of sorts because I have this numbered 116. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> no. We did 116 last okay. week. Okay. <laughs> I, I referenced the uh, email uh, subject, uh, yeah, 117. Right. Um, well, uh, um, do we need to start over then? <laughs> no, I think we just plow through. <laughs> okay. Everyone's going to be confused now. I... It's podcast 117. Let there be no question. Okay. Uh, good week uh, for you? Very interesting week. Super busy week. Uh, we had, on Wednesday night, we had a carnival at my son's elementary school. On Thursday night, we had a school carnival at my daughter's elementary school. And then tonight, we went to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. Ah. Uh, this has been my third trip to the circus. I'd never gone before I got married, and my wife likes to take our kids. So when JJ was our oldest son, when he was like three or four months old, we went to the circus for the first time. <laughs> oh my gosh! Why? Why? <laughs> I don't know. That was she. So every time, pretty much, that Ringling Brothers comes through town, she finds a way to get us there. This time around, she actually won the tickets in a in a contest. Uh, so it was nice that we didn't have to pay. That may have had something to do with the fact that I actually enjoyed the circus this time. <laughs> the fact that I didn't, you know, shell out 50, 60 bucks for it. <laughs> but uh, I, I really enjoyed the circus this time. Uh, as I was telling you earlier tonight, Pete, they actually had a little story going through the, the course of the event. And, and so they, very, very loosely, they tied together... You know why the the different acts were coming out, and so and it was all about this uh, Arabian princess who was trying to escape from the uh, terrible oppression of her father and be with her her lover that she you know her Aladdin if you will that she wanted to be with. But uh, all said, you know I, I I could have gone without most of this most of the stuff. I was just there. I'm glad my kids were enjoying it. But there was one thing that absolutely blew me out of the water. Caught me off guard. I did not expect it. They brought out the human cannonball. Oh, okay. And as they went, as the clown went to light the fuse on the human cannonball, he, quote unquote, had an accident and set the guy on fire. So he's wearing a fire suit and <laughs> launched him through the air. Huge fireball of a person <laughs> blew me away. It was amazing. <laughs> I, I could have watched that thing three or four times in a row. They only did it once, unfortunately. <laughs> but and, and then so then he got up off of the the cushion that he landed on and walked all the way around the stadium once on fire. Wow! 
It was it was amazing to see a guy walking around the flames just pouring off of him, and he's you know you know he's he's fine underneath there, but it just looked very eerie and and fascinating. Do you think that it might actually be the flame from the Fantastic Four? No, I don't think it was the Human Torch. The Human Torch. Hmm. You sure? I'm not sure, but I don't think it was. All right. Yeah, that's uh, that would be pretty cool. What, did your kids like gasp? Oh yeah, horror? everyone in the stadium went because <gasps> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like a tiny bit of flame on him. These were probably eight to ten feet tall flames when he was standing up. They, they were just gouts of flame going up off this guy. It was impressive. They really did a good job with it. Wow, I've got a follow up question about uh, the carnivals at uh, either of these carnivals circus. No, the oh oh the school carnivals. Okay, sorry. <laughs> You've already forgotten that quickly. <laughs> I, I thought you were talking about the previous two trips to the circus, and you just had the wrong word in there. No. Uh, at the carnivals, did they have any caramels? No. But it, the 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 uh, carnival last night did lead to another big change in the Smith family routine. For almost a year now, several times a week, my kids, especially my daughter, have been coming to us and giving us the you-can't-say-no-to-this-face expression <laughs> and begging us for a pet. <laughs> and oh, no. at the carnival, it turned out that they had a one of the games that you could play. If you won, you got a goldfish. Oh, I, yeah, that's... That's safe. They they stood in line for probably 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> and when they got up there, all the goldfish were gone. <laughs> so after the carnival, <laughs> we made a trip to Petco and dropped $35 on goldfish. <laughs> oh, man. I thought uh, what really would have made, made that story great is if you had gone to Petco Made them stand in line for another 45 minutes and, and not the gotten them a fish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that. Oh, dang. No fish here either, kids. So we, we have two two goldfish. They told us you can't put two goldfish in the same small bowl. So you either need to buy an aquarium or you need to buy two separate small bowls. So we bought two bowls and each, each kid got to pick their own fish. And they got to pick the gravel that goes in the bottom and... And one uh, little decoration plant to stick in there. So, so the goldfish only cost me, I think, like fifteen cents. Yeah, they're but cheap. Everything else, <laughs> about thirty-five dollars. You should have just said, "Look, kids, we got some Tupperware at home. We'll ju- you'll just stare at them from the top." <laughs> uh, so, and, and they did tell me that they have a, a sixty-day policy. If the goldfish dies within sixty days, I just bring it back, and they'll give me a new one. <laughs> Which is good. I, you know, I can imagine that I'm probably going to go through three or four here at the start. <laughs> I, I like the idea that uh, your kids might kill them. Oh, I'm just sure. to get new ones. Just tapping on the glass and you know overfeeding and no, 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 on purpose. Like the kids reach in and you know somehow break the little goldfish's neck or something. <laughs> I was washing the uh, the goldfish bowl. You, out. you were what washing? Okay. I'm going to go back and listen to that. I don't think I said washing. <laughs> I think you're getting incredibly close to saying that. <laughs> I want you to say washing. I, I was washing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was washing the bowl out. 
<laughs> I don't think you realize how close you are. Washing. <laughs> and I was using hot water. And, you know, because I wanted to make sure it got, you know, I didn't kill any germs or whatever. And so I, I put it with hot water on the counter. And Beth sticks her hand down in there. It was really hot water. Oh. And she pulls her hands out and says, Dad, you can't put my fish in that. You'll cook him. I don't want to eat him. I want to pet. <laughs> So, but yeah, we have we have two goldfish now. Their names are uh, Perry and Sabrina. Perry, Perry, where does Perry come from? Secret Agent Perry the Platypus. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but it's Perry the Goldfish. <laughs> wow, that is an exciting exciting time for you. It's I been a crazy week. <laughs> yeah, I doesn't even come close to anything I had. So, wow, you win for awesome uh, the Awesome Week Award. <laughs> Is that another picture? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'll award you with this Domino's napkin. <laughs> um, okay, well, uh, let's go into Facebook Find of the Week then. Man, this was a, a strong week. We had a lot of excellent contenders. We had a few excellent contenders. We had about five that I, I think it, it could have been... I think you're winners. being generous, but, uh, but that's okay. Uh, I, li- I I liked the logo thing, I think, a lot more than you did. Yeah, I just did not care for that. I, the, the idea that in 20 or 30 years, IBM's logo will just be a blue square amuses me. That's just the height of lazy. <laughs> We're just picking a color and a shape now. That's our logo. <laughs> H and R Block really did. Yeah, just got a green square. <laughs> but uh, I have to say, you, you know, you had mentioned Pete uh, on the on the page that your yeah. vote was going to. Yeah, my vote's clear. Abbott and Costello. Yeah, I, I think the Carbonite Man really should win for that. But that's I, I love Abbott and Costello. I, I love Abbott and Costello, and, and that would have been the winner if it weren't for the fact that the recording he chose to link to. Out of the dozen or so versions of that routine that I know, that is the worst one. (laughs) There are several really obvious flubs in their lines on that one, and they do the they do one part of the routine like five or six times more than they ever have done it in any of the other recordings. I really, I really do like that routine, so I I would have given it the award if he picked any other version. Uh, the, my personal favorite is the one that has the kinetic typography. Uh, it just also happens to be my favorite of the audio track on that. But uh, I, I think I'm going to have to go with the uh, Sesame Street, the G, the G Club, <laughs> the parody of Glee Club. I, I thought that was hilarious. Uh, my wife watches Glee. I'll grant you the writers who came up with that are geniuses. Yes. <laughs> Genius with a capital G. They it is. Really well done parody. Incredibly well done. Yeah, um, I thought that, I thought it's a little mature for Sesame Street <laughs> aged children, but I, what do I know? I, I'm not a father, clearly. Uh, so, uh, well, the, the, like like I said as as I was watching it, like I told you, their parents and older siblings are probably I, watching Glee. Yes, and so they're they're getting pieces of it. And so I, I think it, I think it makes it relevant to them. I I enjoyed it. I'm giving my vote, and since it's my segment, <laughs> the winner is listener Bob. Yeah, way to go, Bob! 
And uh, that uh, should make him a two-time winner now, yeah. right? Yeah. Although I think he's seen the two-time winner award already. Has he? I'm going to have to check, my, uh, check the outgoing email box and make sure. I think when we sent Spongebob her award that we gave him the two-time winner award. So, because they'd already seen the first one. Oh, Although maybe right. maybe SpongeBob chose not to share that with him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, truthfully, we don't properly remember it, which way it went. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think we may have sent him uh, that already. Uh, okay, well that's good. Um, let me uh, let me do this thing next before you get into Joey's culture. Okay, corner, if you don't mind, I don't. Mind. A little break from the usual. Routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brainy Smurf said, uh, sent in an email that I thought we should read part of it to be at the start. Okay. Uh, what's up, dudes, interns, Johns, and LBSers? Wasn't aware he had uh, followers <laughs> of some sort, but congratulations to him. Um, can we now have a bell for it doesn't get any better than this? <laughs> The talk last week of doling up, uh, dolling up Marcus to better meet Ivanova's standards was super funny. Also, sorry I wrote so much last week. I'm not trying to be the next contributor, Jim, or nothing, as I'm way cooler. Take that, Jim. <laughs> Will the overlords allow a feud between two listeners? Yeah, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. But you have to get the other listener to actually, you know... Like participate. Participate in that. And I really don't see Jim coming back for this. So, maybe on the next show. Uh, bring it on. On another note, the three-peat prize went over well at the PSU party. The girls want to use it for Halloween party invitations. Awesome. And the prompting of the LBSers, I accept and thank you now for my first submission as Intern Brainy Smurf. Joey can provide background music here. And now for the semi-occasional Brainy's Nook of Darkness. <laughs> A cryptically contemplative compliment to the corner that Joey forces us into each week. <laughs> This is interesting. I, I'm excited. Let's hear it. Kawabunga Kabahanda. I'm brutally mispronouncing this, I'm sure, and I'm about to go on and screw up several other mispronunciations. I'll enjoy that. <laughs> Rakashas translates from the Sanskrit into Night Wanderers. They appear throughout Hindu myths as Asuras, which are Hindu demons. Their king is Ravana with ten heads, twenty arms, and, screaming willies evoking, red glowing eyes. Ravana is also a lover, and he steals the hero's woman, Sita. In the Ramayana, which is like India's version of the Odyssey, also allegedly written by one dude, a minor character within the Ramayana is Kabhanda. It's fun to say, Kabhanda. So, Kapanda fought a, uh, fought a god, Indra, who bonked the demigod, he uh, demigod head in a very whack-a-mole-like downward stroke. The blow <laughs> caused his head to sink into his torso, and then Indra chopped off his legs. This, the OG of nearly a flesh wound, um, because Kapanda 
continues on and grows eight legs out of his torso, with each leg being miles in length. He is maybe similar size and appearance of the shadow vessels from Babby 5. The biggest difference between the two monsters is their respective arcs, and especially their resolutions in the story. For when Kabahanda battles the hero of the Ramayana, Rama, who eventually mortally wounds Kabanda, and then Kabanda actually apologizes and begs for atonement. Raman, uh, Rama grants him a proper burial pyre, and then from the ashes emerges a better version of Kabahanda. As he is now a good spirit, he aids the hero in his journey. Granted that the Ramayana is a seven-volume epic that is 2,500 years old, I still think this small excerpt is a better Spidey story than that of The Shadow. Interesting. Um, please provide a pronunciation guide next time you're going to give oh, me words from... Because you're too lazy to go type it into Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'm putting on a podcast. I don't have time to go look these things up. <laughs> Um, anyway, that was a nice share of yeah. that. And I think it's going to play in a little bit uh, into the whole atonement theme motif. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that should go ahead of Joey's Culture Corner. Certainly. So. Uh, well placed. Uh, Joey's Culture Corner this week is The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. Or Haldeman, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name. Um, this is a science fiction book about interstellar war. So humanity comes in contact with another race called the Taran, and they blow a human ship out of the sky. That's basically our first interaction with them. We get all geared up and we introduce conscription. We take the smartest people in the country, or in the, the United Nations uh, at the time, teach them combat, basic combat tactics, load them on a slower than light ship but it can it can approach light speed but it can't actually hit it and send them out to a, a, a kind of star called a collapsar and they've they've discovered that these things called collapsars if they head towards these things when they get to where they should be sucked into the gravity well of the star instead they pop out in the universe they pop out somewhere else in the universe and after doing this a few times they're able to figure out the mathematics to predict where they're going to pop out so they're kind of like the wormhole of uh, Deep Space Nine, I would say. a okay. similar concept. So they, these guys go out and and they are going out to fight the Tarn. The problem is, in order to get to the Collapsars and then to get from the Collapsars to the planets where we know the Tarn have a presence, we, we can't travel faster than light speeds. We can travel near relativistic, but not exactly. And so in the course of the two years that this guy the main character, serves in the military. His first stint in the military is two years. A hundred years passes back on Earth. And a hundred years passes for the Torrent. So they go and they have a, a first ground war between them and the Torrent, load back up into their ship, and then head to another planet where they know the Torrent are. By the time they get there, the Torrent have advanced by another hundred years technologically they're a hundred, so they're like, okay, we're we're now fighting a force that's one hundred years from our future, and they just get crushed, they get absolutely destroyed, and this this is a cycle that repeats itself as he goes out and he fights, 
and then he has, they have to retreat back to Earth in order to upgrade to the newer technology that's been going on while they're traipsing about the galaxy at slower than light speeds. They get new technology, they go back out and try and fight again. So it's one of the few books that actually, the few science fiction books I read anyway, that actually deals with not having faster than light travel and how it impacts the characters. And I'd say that's the big idea of the book is how society changes from the perspective of the main characters while they're relatively static. That seems like a horrible premise. Oh, it's like really it's just, interesting. Nah, well, not the premise, but at some point, wouldn't someone have come along and said, boy, yeah, I guess it really wasn't that big a deal that those aliens blew up that ship 100 years ago. <laughs> we haven't really seen them in the last 90 years. Maybe we should call our other ship back. Well, they, they don't have faster than light communication either. <laughs> they don't have the Ansible. They don't have an Ansible. <laughs> so, yeah, in fact... The first time they head back uh, towards Earth is because they got hit by this future tech of the Tarans, and they're like, wow, you know, last time we interacted with the Tarans, they had nothing like this. It damaged our ship. We have to head back to Earth because we're the only data. Our ship, the damage to our ship, is the only data that Earth has about this new technology. So we need to go back there and... How many ships did they send out? Two or three. We don't have very many... uh, Space cruisers, or at least at the beginning. At the beginning. It gets more advanced over time. It seems odd to me that we would uh, be that patient with a war. <laughs> you know? We, we kind of know, okay, this is going to be a long haul here. And we're sending you off. We'll never see you again. Yeah. And our grandchildren are going to be commanding you by the time, you know, you get back or something. Well, it, it's it's really interesting, and there's there's reasons inside the story why it's still why why the war is still going on when they get back to Earth. He actually dives into that about how um, the war has actually become the prop for Earth's economy. Huh. So it, I see gen- generating more war effort is all that Earth does now all yep. the time. That makes sense. Anyway, so it, it's incredibly well written. I so, am, am I to assume then the big idea is that uh, uh, capitalism is evil, and we need to abandon it? No, it's because it will just lead us to war eventually. It's that the United Nations is evil, and we should abandon it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that might be a slanted Joey view. Are you sure about this? <laughs> I think you could certainly read it and get that out of it. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. Well, that's it. As far as I'm concerned, that must be what the big idea is. I am not going to read no, this the, book. Probably. The, the big idea is the the cost of war when it's hundreds of years between engagements. Yeah, yeah. I, to me, it just seems like this is this is stupid at that point. And I, I guess I would be one of the ones who would be saying, "Why are we still doing this?" <laughs> Can't we beat our our spears into pruning hooks and our swords into plowshares? Nope. <laughs> oh, yeah. well. I give it a thumb up. Thumb up. You enjoyed it that I much. I do, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I guess this means we'll get into episodes. We are going to be covering episodes 9 through 12 of Babylon 5 Season 4. And we'll go ahead and start off with uh, episode 9, Atonement. 
Delenn is recalled to Minbar to face judgment for her actions regarding Sheridan. Didn't we already have an episode about atonement? Mm, are you thinking of passing through Gethsemane? Yeah. Yeah. This one is a, is a much more personal story for Straczynski. Uh From the script book here, he says, In prior volumes of this collection, I referenced the fact that I'd once belonged to a cult and that I was involved with a young woman while living in a, in a commune run by said cult. One of the requirements of living in community, as it was called, was to put everything you have and everything you're doing in submission to the authority of the elders. The woman with whom I was involved was no exception to this rule. We had to put our relationship before the elders for their approval. Yeah, I know. Hard to believe I'd put up with that sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> what can I say? I was young and foolish. The only difference now is that I'm not young anymore. Had they said that we were not meant to be together, then we would have had to go our separate ways. We were both incredibly relieved when the elders said we seemed to make a good couple. Of course, the flip side of that is that when I left the commune, she wouldn't come along. We had to put the calling of our hearts before the elders for their approval. And now we all know the origin of that part of the episode, wherein Delenn has to come before the elders of her clan to validate her relationship with Sheridan. Hmm. Okay, so Delenn may be leaving Babylon 5 permanently. Yeah. She's she's getting the call up here that she's got to go and stand before her people. Um, but before she goes, Delenn dresses up a little sexy. Yeah. Which seems a little out of character for... Minbari? Yeah. It's that human part of her, her, her genetic code. I guess. I guess. Um, anyway, uh, it seems as though it's Delenn's feelings that are on trial through yes. this this yeah. whole thing. And she's going to go through this thing called... The Dreaming. The Dreaming. Yeah. And, uh, Which takes place in the Whisper Gallery. <laughs> I don't get that, but whatever. So, I'm assuming, again, this isn't explained, and I'm assuming here that they drink that drink and it evokes hallucinations brought upon by memories. Apparently important memories. See, I have always assumed that the drink makes them quasi-telepathic so that the guide can share in the reliving of the memories that the person going through the dreaming experiences. Yeah, I guess I didn't really understand that part. I just assumed it was when they walk in that door there's that glowing blue light. Uh-huh. I just assumed that was scanning their heads. <laughs> and it was then, you know, portraying what was happening out there in you know, the You know what's funny is I almost tweeted to J. Michael Straczynski today and what? asked him. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> You're like, oh, uh, yeah, I could tweet or I could go on eating these chips. And so you just <laughs> no, went on was, eating chips. I could, I could tweet or I could take my kids to the circus. Oh, yeah, because the two are <laughs> mutually exclusive. I could do one or the other, but not both. It takes so long to work up the, the guts and the cracked phrasing to tweet J. Michael Susanski. No, I just, I thought about it and I never got around to it. I want to know what they're drinking. 
Yeah, okay, so whatever it is, whether it's, you know, me thinking the blue light is projecting it, or they're sharing some sort of mutually psychotic dream yeah. within the, the mist, Wh- whatever, they're doing it, that's what happens. Um, and Here's why I think it's it's a dust-like substance. Okay. She, sa- she asks the guy when she goes to go back in the second time, she says, do you want to see, and hands him the, the cup. As though he has to drink in order to see. There's, there's my argument. Okay. Okay. I didn't care one way or the other. I have just voicing opinion. That's all. You, you could. I'll even say it. You're right. Oh, see, there, you're, that's, you're, that's you're, what I'm you're looking just, for. You're we can, right. We can move on now. <laughs> in his, in this, we meet Ducat for the first time. Yep. And uh, I'm just gonna say it. I think Ducat has. Like, he's misusing his power over Delenn. I feel like he's sort of... I got creepy vibes off of Ducat oh, yeah? towards Delenn. Like, really? the way he was looming over her, and was like, Yes, come, Acolyte. Come with <laughs> you, me. You thought there were sexual overtones oh, there, Oh, huh? man! <laughs> Huge amounts! <laughs> I've never got that. And I may be the only one, but it just creeped me out to no to no end. I get that, you know, from that, that he's also supposed to be this very intellectual, very uh, uh, well-put-together Minbari. greatest of us, they keep saying. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic. That still doesn't change the fact that he was creepy, man, <laughs> to Delenn. You know, this impressionable, I'm guessing, at the time, young... Minbari that uh, yeah I yeah. guess could be considered attractive uh, amongst their culture. I don't know. I, I just got creepy feelings from it. I like that the uh, the line that he uses with her. She ended up using later with Lanier. You know when she, when he says oh look up and she says oh it'd be disrespectful. Yeah. I cannot have an aide who won't look up. You'll be constantly running into things. Right. I like yeah. that little thread of commonality yep. in the relationship there. I noticed that as well. Um. So I think we definitely both agree, though, creepiness to a younger member from the leader no, is... No, I didn't sense that. Oh, no, would you? Why? Ah, ah. <laughs> well, talk faster. <laughs> nope, uh, I'll just concede. I'm right at this point All here. All right, okay. <laughs> but that's well, a, I that, agree. That's a wrong thing for a leader to do Sure. to a younger member. An impressionable... Younger member. I'm not saying underaged here, because no, it, it'd be I don't, don't want to go that creepy level. It's definitely a misuse of his authority if that's yeah. going on. So um, we come to find out that he has propelled her along the path into the Great Council, and she's you know one of these powerful members because of him. He has led her along. To, why are you giggling now? <laughs> You know what? No, we're, we're done. Let's give ratings. My rating for science fiction is a seven. Joey, what's your rating? Are you kidding me? Are you guy, you you're ruining this. I'm sorry. Go, go no, you, you clearly had something to add to that. It's not something that should be said on the air. Damn you! You can say member. <laughs> Everybody, I am so sorry. I am just so sorry. We should just restart this for all of our listeners out there. I told you I was going to be out of sorts. Uh, 
anyway, uh, turn come to find out, it's Delenn who started the Earth Minbari War. Yeah, she's the one who, out of rage and pure emotion, shouted, "Make them pay! Make them pay!" No mercy. And um, that's that's kind of how the the whole war started. Yep. Instead of seeking understanding and trying to figure it out, thankfully Ducat agrees with me that coming to a ship with gun ports open has got to be the dumbest thing you can ever possibly do. <laughs> Especially we do a new ship you've never a met new culture, before. Yeah. God, so dumb. Yeah, I thought I thought you would catch on to the fact that he agrees with you. Um. Anyway, so Lanier and Delenn figure out eventually what this is all about. Yep. And Delenn is able to remember that what Ducat had said to her as his last breath, which was, you have the blood of Valen in you. Yeah. Which is kind of impressive, but when we come to find out, like, how... I. It's not that impressive. Valen's blood must be spread out amongst tons of people yeah. now. Yeah. But the fact that they know that and they've been hiding it from their people. Yes. So do they know that Valen was part human? They know that he wasn't Minbari. Right, right. The Minbari not, not born, born of Minbari. Minbari. But do, does is it ever expressly stated anywhere within their culture, their... No. Not not until the point at which Cher, uh, Sinclair got the letter from himself in the past, and at that point, anyone at the upper echelons of Minbari society knew Sinclair is Valen. The, you know, he's a human. He becomes a Minbari. Right. We get an answer of where the Triluminary came from. I don't know if you caught that. They came from Epsilon Three. The planet. Yeah. Oh, okay. Drawl, basically. The, the, the great machine. That's where the Trilumina... I, I, all the times I watched this, I had never caught that. I always couldn't... I could never figure huh. out... I didn't How did that. the Triluminary get into the time stream? It actually came from the great machine. Uh, Delenn says, you know, we know, as though, you know, all of us Minbari at the top echelon of government here, know that Sheridan... Or, dang it, that Sinclair... <laughs> Became Minbari via the Triluminary that he got from Epsilon 3. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, at, at that point, the people at the top level definitely knew that there was human g- genetic DNA in, in the Minbari bloodstream. I see. Now, we actually get a really good look at the Triluminary now, which it looks like it's got some sort of chip suspended between wires. Yeah. Which... I, don't know, I guess it, it doesn't make it. it kind of makes it less cool to me now. That they actually showed it a really good shot yeah. of it. <laughs> I mean, I guess yeah, okay, cool. We got a close up of, but uh, wish, of, wish we hadn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, we've come to find out that that guy who was putting Delenn up for trial, he knew all of this all along. Yeah. And he was he was trying to undercut Delenn somehow and her power. No, what what he was trying to do is. He was trying to prevent the exact thing that had already happened, which is the mass populace becoming aware of the Minbari bloodline being quote-unquote tainted. Oh, yeah. The purity of our race right. line. Right. So he, he, even though he knows the race is not pure, 
it's the fact that most Minbari believe that their race is pure. Yeah, that is such a stupid idea. <laughs> that creates the problem. But, you know, it, it was nice because it did answer one question for me, which is, could Minbari and Earthers have created a child? Had, you know, if a Minbari and you know someone from Earth had ever gotten together, could they have made a child? And the answer is no. They wouldn't have because not it without was, the trilemma. Yeah, the the genetic structure was modified, and so that's how it was able to happen. So that's why Delenn and uh, Sheridan oh, okay. are now going to be able to have children. It's because she's been modified in her DNA. Right. Um, could other races out there, other humanoid type races? Crossbreed? Crossbreed, do we, we know? We don't know. It's never ever told? No. It is it is frustrating because within Star Trek, that was happening all the time. Yeah. Klingons, humans, we are all getting together. You know, it happens. And yeah, we had a nice little story that wrapped up why it was able to happen. You know, because we're all from the same genetic stock. <laughs> you know, whatever. But it still showed, you know, other cultures getting together. Yeah. Within Babylon 5, I don't know that I've ever noticed... A mixed race. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find a little tough to believe because i got to think there's weirdos out there all over the place. I just think of, you know, emo people. And i I got to think at some point that one of them is going to say, Oh, yeah, i got to get this guy. <laughs> I like your uh, representation of an emo person. <laughs> It just, does it make sense here what yeah, I'm saying? I, I know what you're trying to say. Did he? Did Straczynski intentionally not do that for a reason? I think it was just budget. Really? I think so. Because he, he's... All he's got to do is just show two people walking arm in arm, one human, one already in an alien costume. Well, no, we know that they uh, interact sexually. The question is whether or not they can have offspring from that. Mm. We, we actually... In the, yeah, the very first episodes, they said, you know, stick to the list. There's this list <laughs> yeah, yeah. of races that would procreate in a way that would at least be familiar to you. Please stay to that list because otherwise bad things can happen. Yeah, you'll get eaten or something. Uh, yeah, that's true. We saw Jakar getting busy with the ladies. Yeah. Um, and trying to get busy with <laughs> Leah. Leah. Um, anyway, but as far as an actual relationship... Like, I'm going to make a life with this other alien. I, I think it's just a, a thing of... He felt already constrained to, to tell the stories that he did want to tell. And adding in that extra element just didn't become a priority. I'm... Disappointed at the priorities of some things that did get to be made. You mean like Dr. Love? I'm just thinking of TKO. Oh, I see. <laughs> That was clearly a priority. That could have been changed into something <laughs> so else. If they, had, if they had introduced a... Uh, I don't want to say biracial. It doesn't sound like the right term. <laughs> a human-alien hybrid Interspecies relationship. relationship. Interspecies relationship. In that episode, you'd be okay with TKO? <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't be talking about it right now. That's for sure. Uh, man, maybe I missed one or two of you know relationships that happened that we just weren't paying attention to. But yeah. it just 
it was so prevalent in TNG, almost non-existent here. Anyway, um, and then we have a stupid ending with Marcus and Franklin. Yeah, uh, the whole Marcus and Franklin thing was just. You skipped over one of my favorite parts, though. Oh, Jakar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jakar gets the eye. And I have to tell you, Pete, if I had an eye that would work outside of my body, oh, yeah. I guarantee you I'd be playing with that thing all sorts of ways. Oh, yeah. The idea of being able to finally see yourself from outside. I was about to say, oh, you are a pervert, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, lo- I'd love to be able to actually you know, see myself from something other than a mirror. Just to really see yourself from outside. I just see you propping that up in some lady's dressing room or something. <laughs> Or, you know, you go, you go to bed at night and you put it out where you know your kids are going to be into stuff that they're not supposed to. Hey! Get out of the cookie jar! <laughs> I can see you! <laughs> I agree. I think it would be incredibly useful to be able to pull the eye out and, you know, have it look around a corner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, leave it sitting on the cabinet and somebody who, you know, needs micromanaging. I'm watching you. Literally. <laughs> Get back to work. <laughs> okay, I don't have anything else to say. Comments? Uh, the, the one interesting thing about the dreaming that I I find fascinating is that it gives you what in our culture today we would call superior autobiographical memory. The ability to go into your own memories and to pick up on details that you didn't pick up on the first time. Mm-hmm. This ability to actually go in and, and re-examine your own memory of a situation and to correct things that you missed the first time or that you may have misinterpreted the first time, that really fascinates me. I, I, I really enjoy the idea of the dreaming for that aspect of it. But then it would prove that you were wrong. It would let me be more right. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, in some regards, I don't think that I would enjoy that. Okay. Um, yeah, I suppose there are certain moments I'd like to be able to relive because they were, you know, such fond memories, but it doesn't sound like the dreaming is set up to allow you to choose what you're going to see. That seems true. like That's the dreaming true. is sort of like you're going to go in and you're going to get. It's going to be dictated to you. Yeah. Correct. Um, and I would hate the idea of having to relive certain moments. You okay. know, not that sure. I am uh, ashamed. I certainly am disappointed at a few decisions that I've made in my life. I'll admit. <laughs> well, I just want to be my friend. <laughs> so you don't want to relive that one. <laughs> uh, how did I uh, go back in time and stop myself from starting this podcast? <laughs> um, but there's just certain things that I would cringe at having to rewatch in okay. my life, and I wouldn't want that. Okay. Listen comments? to comments. Yep. Okay, we'll we'll go with Brainy Smurf here. Um, JMS should be atoning. For the whole Mars story arc, as it's erasing any lines of interest in watching the second half of season four. Wow. I think he was just trying to get all of the words from the titles. No, he wasn't. Well, I thought he was, but maybe. No, interest and lines of communication? Oh, yeah. Where's the racing? Oh, racing to Mars, of course. Yeah, he was playing on that. He's too smart for my own good. Sometimes. (laughs) Uh, no surrender, no atonement. Dudes, I just don't know about this episode. But Joey's answering of my questions last week was really helpful. So thank you. From under the bus. 
<laughs> and now I have da, 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 more questions for Joey. <laughs> okay. Since he is clearly considered as superior to the rest, what is Ducat's title slash position slash rank in the Great Council? I can't remember the title. Um, he does have a title within the Great Council. I mean, he'd be Satai, obviously, because anyone in the Great Council is a Satai. But Delenn was in the same position as him when she decided to become the ambassador to Babylon 5. There is a title for the, the head member or the, gui- the guiding member of the <laughs> Great Council. I just can't remember the term right now. You said member. <laughs> okay, well, um, you missed that one then. Okay. Why, why does he only? Uh, why does only he get a cool staff that would make even Skeletor jealous? Well, it's the it's the staff that goes with his his rank. Delenn had the same staff, and that's the staff that she broke. Ah, that they she couldn't break, and they had to pre break <laughs> for her. Um, was he on his way to becoming the Czar of Mimbar? <laughs> I don't believe they have a czar. They have the. But was he coming? Do you think he would have tried to usurp the power? I don't believe so. No. no. He, okay. He, when, when we get to uh, in the beginning, I think you'll see that Ducat genuinely was a good guy. Wait. So we are going to watch the movies now. We're going to watch in the beginning. Oh. Last we, time I asked, you were like, Ugh, "No, we're not, not even." I want Third to Space. do that. We're not going to watch the River of Souls, and uh, we're not going to watch what's the what's the other one that's just outright terrible. I can't remember it right now. But we will watch in the beginning between seasons four and five. Okay. Is he also in tactical command of the ship he resides on? Yes. Okay. So whatever ship he ends up on, he would yep. be the He's default the highest leader. ranking. Okay. Yeah. Um, why does he have facial hair? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that one. We have seen a few Minbar with it. Or, really? Yeah. Drawl had it, right? At one point. I guess he did. Hmm. Okay. Uh, why couldn't Jakar continue to wear the funky, funky eye patch? Well, because there will be a scene coming up where the fact that he can take the eye out becomes significant. I don't see why you had to mention that. You could have just said, because he got a new eye. Oh. Because he got a new eye. You Cut messed, the rest of that. Messed that one up. <laughs> and how many shots in this episode... Do we see Delenn giving her most emphatic, wide-eyed, worried but incredulous face? I didn't count them. <laughs> the answer is sixteen. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I kind of get a little tired of that face as well. She gets a little overboard on it. Okay. As was previously mentioned by both Joey and Moneybags, Babby Five touches on many of the different sci-fi topoi. Involving the desire to change the inevitable, and of how the first ones demonstrate this by trying to resist the future. So I started to reread Foundation. Not to be confused with JMS's fluffy religion, Foundationism. <laughs> I am sure Joey has thrown Asimov's Hugo winning epic in his culture corner before. But the point is that Asimov said there were a quadrillion humans in that future. And Hari wants to help as many as possible. The Vorlon and the Shadow have surely each murdered quadrillions of life forms in either their 
planet-killing campaigns or indirect military engagements over the millennia? Where is the part of the story where they must atone or feel bad about the massive killings which they were responsible for? I'm seriously, I'm serious, you guys. They make the natural-born killers look like the Care Bears. <laughs> what a what a comparison there, really. I don't think anyone has ever made a comparison like that before. It is a little incongruous. I'm just thinking of the uh, <laughs> uh, cheer bear, you know, coming through and. Giving his cheer stare or something. And decimating the skeleton of some poor child. <laughs> Stripping the flesh well, you right know, off of him. He does that in uh, the ultimate showdown of Ultimate Destiny. Okay. He does come through. Um, Lorian never seems to mind either. Because he is way too old? Apathetic? Evolved? De-evolved? And, uh, let's see, none of these jerk jerkwad firsties respect life. I often ask myself in life situations, what would Picard do? Does he have a little bracelet? WWPD? <laughs> they do have that bracelet. Do they? Yeah. That's hilarious. And if that doesn't work, I ask myself, what would the... What would the... What would the myself in life situation... Uh, sorry, I misread a line here. Feel free to add in, uh, you know, some paragraphs next time. Brainy Smurf, salt one big, solid mass of text. It's a little tough to read. I got, I got turned around. Uh, and if that doesn't work, I ask, I ask myself, what would the Doctor do? I referred to the Time Lord, not Franklin. The Doctor. <laughs> I'll sleep with her, of course. <laughs> The doctor is like 900 years old, and he really, really appreciates life, always endeavoring to help people to see their ordinary lives as extraordinary. The captain and the doctor and uh, Commander Adama constitute my personal paradigm for respecting life, living honestly, and being cool. Excellent choices, by the way. (laughs) If you're going to pick three within science fiction... You picked three good ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't speak to the Adama, but... Yeah, he's pretty cool. Um, they would all be pissed off about the Nazi aliens. I want to believe that just because you are five billion years old does not mean you lose respect for all living things. Nor does it mean that you can just kill everyone without consequences. Age should increase respect for life. And so I hate all of the first ones. Save Zog. <laughs> and even Lorian barely redeems himself in the end. How? We'll get to that. I liked his TikTok talk because it's like Zen for children. But Lorian never goes on to say that killing is wrong. Life I mistakenly, um, like I mistakenly thought he did. So you were right, Moneybags. Lorian is a flimsy turd as are his kids. They are supposedly the manifestations of the sentient being that is the universe. But becoming aware of this should never reduce the miracle of life as expendable by anyone's deliberate action, other than the universe's own hand. And so, in my universe, I like to believe that Lorian realizes this. 
But instead of lording it over the heads of his children, both the misty Vorlon non-heads and the spiky 15-eyed shadow heads, in my head's version of the story, I believe that the Vorlon vessel above Centauri Prime should have beamed Londo up, and so he could accompany them all, as Lorien tricks everyone, except Zog, by saying that they are going beyond the rim. Wink, wink. <laughs> but actually, he is leading them into hell, and they will burn slowly, fueled by the collective manifestations of defecation that they have all become. And thus, justice is appropriately dispensed and administered. And the universe breathes a sigh of relief, for, in the end, all the universe needed was to take a cosmic bowel movement. <laughs> And by the way, I'm not sure I if I like the title Intern Brainy Smurf, as its abbreviation is synonymous with the affliction that the super hot character Adriana on The Sopranos got, known as IBS. She was then not so hot. Sci-Fi 5, TV 2. Wow. And his linear quote of the week, I managed to explain matters to them. They will recover in time. <laughs> These are some pretty bold words. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that Straczynski w would let the Shadows or the Vorlon off the hook for what they've done. But the thing is, it's not about them. This show is not about the Vorlon and the Shadow. So as soon as they are going off to deal with the, the cost of their mistakes... We completely forget about them because the focus of the show is the younger races. So, and I think if we look at the character of Londo and the character of Jakar and the arcs that their characters take over the course of the show, we'll see that that Straczynski doesn't believe in letting characters off the hook. It's just that the Shadow and the Vorlon are no longer important to the story. What happened to them as a result of what they did? is not germane to the story that Straczynski's trying to tell. So, as far as we're concerned, Brainy Smurf is right. That's exactly what happened. No, I disagree. Well, we It have all no, happened off camera. We have no other way of knowing, so his idea is just as right. I have an imagination, right. don't just you? So, you haven't posited anything else here. You've not given us anything else to go on, so we must accept Brainy Smurf. It's the only option available. You sound like Londo. <laughs> Uh, no, I wasn't doing a weird accent, so it couldn't have been Londo. I meant the words you selected there. Oh. <laughs> I have no choice. I must do this. Uh, okay, uh, Moneybags. He says, hey guys, uh, a bit of a come down after the events of last week. I agree with him yeah. on that. Uh, but all in all, a solid batch of episodes. I wish there had been more time to develop the Minbari Civil War plot. It just seems to es escalate very quickly. Atonement. The Mimbari are weird. No one has ever gone into the exposition machine. I mean, the dreaming. And <laughs> lied about what they saw? I guess that would be dishonorable. Did Delenn do anything to try to stop the Earth-Mimbari war? I mean, I know she was, t uh, she was told it had become a holy war, but what did she do then? Throw her hands up and say, Oh well, I tried. We Could know what she did. Couldn't she have gone public? Oh, right. The Mimbari don't have news media. Oops. Surely <laughs> she... Internally consistent. Surely she could have done more. 
Um, you, you say that she was she had. Do we do know that she what she did? She had them capture Sinclair so that we could, so that the Minbari could scan him and then ended the war as a result of what they found. I'm still not sure why they why they captured one of them and scanned them. What was the motivation behind that? Because she wanted to know. Well, I don't know why they put the triluminary up there necessarily, but she wanted to know about these humans. She said, oh, you know, before we completely wipe them out as a race, let's get one of them and actually find out whether they are the barbarians I accused them of being or whether this was just a big misunderstanding. Mm. And somewhere in that interrogation sequence, for whatever reason we don't know, they decided to put a triluminary up against him and it responded. So Delenn actually did take steps to try and un- unravel what she had done. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, Lanier is awesome as always. I love how they just got up and walked away after explaining things to What's-His-Face. All that was missing was... Lanier. Good day, sir. Other guy. But, uh, Lanier. I said good day! <laughs> and a great callback to the purple-green episode. Yeah. Ivanova <laughs> is hilarious as she limps away and tries to preserve some dignity. I'm going to have to disagree with you on that. All in all, a good episode. I like that they showed us scenes from the past instead of just having people explain what happened. TV 6, Sci-Fi 7. And and just for the record, those scenes that we see from the past are actually clips of the then-in-production in the beginning. Hmm. So they will they will reuse that footage. Because so we'll they see were more creepy uh, Ducat. Ducat. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Mentally you're, you're fondling Delenn. You're going to find out a lot of stuff about Ducat, actually. He was a very major player in the... Like when he got his beard. No, I don't think we, we see that. He has no. it the whole time we know him. Dang it. Pete, science fiction. I give this a seven. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that uh, I, while the dreaming thing is a little silly, it's still an interesting concept that they take people through. We get to see a lot of how Delenn came out to be Delenn. And I think that's enough to cover up the whole Marcus Franklin thing and, yes, the Ivanova thing. So I give it a 7. I feel good with that. Okay. I, I gave it an 8. I was just surprised at how high you came in. I, I think the whole concept of the dreaming and then the the scenes that we are shown there are very science fiction heavy. Mm-hmm. For television, though, eh, there wasn't a terrible amount of bad acting and the production seemed okay for the most part. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to give it a 5. Okay. I'm giving it a four. I, I, I like what, uh, was it Moneybags that called the dreaming the exposition machine? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I think it needs to take a hit for that, you know. The, obviously, he had to tell us that somehow, but it, it felt a little heavy-handed. No, I was okay with that. I, I was okay. really okay with that. The P5 rating is 8.55. Moving on to our next episode, Racing Mars. Franklin and Marcus arrive on Mars to connect with the Resistance there while Sheridan confronts Garibaldi. Pete, your science fiction rating? <laughs> I hate this episode. I'll admit, I this is like the gathering. <laughs> There's just not a whole lot to like here. I enjoy Captain Jack and what happens with Captain okay. Jack. All right. I like that storyline. That we get to find a little bit of information about the Keepers? Uh, well, more so that... Captain Jack, I end up liking the character. Okay. 
he is in a tough position. He's got this thing on him somehow, and he's still trying to fight against it. You know, dropping the little hints, albeit eye-roll-inducing type of uh, plot stuff, you know, with Franklin telling us, Oh, he was trying to tell us this whole time! <laughs> you know, I think, oh, good heavens. But still, nonetheless, he, you know, the character itself was fighting against yeah. it in what little way he could. And finally decides, you know, he's going to make a break for it after that thing is, you know, part of it is shot off of him. You know, it's still growing back, but he gets away and he's got enough control to at least be able to say, hey, look, guys, I'm sorry about everything that's happened, but there's no way out of this. And the only thing that I'm left with is to, well, bite the bullet, essentially, yeah. you know, or bite the thermo grenade. And he explodes it inside that tube, which was, I, I kind of like the way that that looks, too. It was a too. cool graphic, yeah. They did a good job. Um, and I just, I enjoy what that character goes through. Albeit, you know, it's an incredibly small role, and it's, I don't think, is acted specifically well, but I still like the character. Okay. That's so true. Yeah. I that that was that was okay for me. I had a few other just interesting things. Uh the idea that protein bars don't get any better in the next 250 years. <laughs> <laughs> like, all the technological advances in protein bars are still crap. <laughs> yeah, they're... Some are okay, but in the end, I mean, in order to really make them taste good, you have to introduce sugar, which introducing sugar, I think, would start to take away from, you know, the longevity of yeah, the, the thing. Yeah, the value of it on the face, yeah. Um, There's uh, apparently still porn in 2261. Yeah, the adult channel. <laughs> I guess. I mean, why not? Yeah. We've got enough other maybe. Issues. Maybe that was when he was going to show us the uh, interspecies combining that you were looking for, oh, but gross. it was being jammed. Gross. <laughs> um, Human drowsy porn. Oh. <laughs> oh. Red, like green versus purple porn. <laughs> Just took out a whole new meaning, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that is just so wrong. Um, I don't really care about the Garibaldi Sheridan stuff. What don't. about the biker gang that reaches out to Garibaldi? <laughs> no, that didn't what do anything that? for me. I, I, okay, if, uh, this was kind of stupid, kind of funny. The whole okay, well, we need to, you know, here's this other ceremony. You know, I've accepted you essentially. But one of the next ceremonies, which there are 47 of them. 50. 50 that he's got to go through. This one is, we need to figure out what the pleasure centers of each other are. And then... Oh, Sher- by the way. <laughs> Sheridan's like, oh, okay, sure, I'm in for this one. He goes in, and there is a panel... <laughs> Of judges? <laughs> I don't know what they were doing there. What could they possibly be doing there? They were the parents in the other room to make sure things didn't go too far. Uh, well, anyway, the you know the supposed funny thing at the end with Lanier, where he goes up to Sheridan and says, "Woohoo!" <laughs> As you know, judgmental, you know, because eh, Lanier's you know he's kind of sweet on Delenn. Yeah. Okay, so my question for you, and you know, if I can come up with the moral question here, would you do the ceremony? You're Sheridan, <laughs> and you're Joey. 
<laughs> well, that's an interesting conflict. <laughs> um, for my wife, yes, I would have done that. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I did. I did way more embarrassing things <laughs> to get her to marry. Wow! <laughs> I don't want to know. Huh? You 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 would do that? That something that is so incredibly intimate would become something Dude, I so helped, public. I helped chop off cow testicles for her. Oh, uh, I don't know. That, there's something impersonal uh, about you know. <laughs> Cutting off testicles of an animal. <laughs> Maybe for you. That was incredibly <laughs> uncomfortable for me. Wait, what were they doing with them? They were like dragging them over your face once they were cut off? It's like no. some sort of ceremony. No, there's no teabagging going on. <laughs> uh, I realize now I could never run for any sort of office with all of the things that I have said. I've got no credibility anymore. I like consider myself a pretty religious guy, and uh, it's just the, the number of jokes that I go through here because of you, <laughs> you've tainted me, sir. Um. Anyway, I. Yeah, I don't have anything else to talk about. There, there was one note in the, uh, in the script book that I wanted to call back to here. The one line that I thought nobody would even notice, about which I am still getting email complaints to this day. And not just a handful of email or letters of complaint. I'm talking here the most complaints of any single story incident in the long history of Babylon 5 is the line where Garibaldi identifies the current Pope as a female. Yeah, I noticed that as well. The level of sheer outrage and anger prompted by this one line has been astonishing to behold. Leading to accusations that I am mocking the Catholic Church, that I am committing heresy an insult to the Pope and every living Catholic, none of this was intended in any way, shape, or form. It was a historical speculation, not a theological one. So with that as background... <laughs> I don't know how you draw the difference there, but I... So with that as background, let me explain what led to the line. Every church that wishes to survive changes adapts to the changing circumstances. And despite claims to the contrary, the Catholic Church changes as well. As I write this, for instance, it is not permissible for priests to marry. But this wasn't always so. Even as late as the medieval period, priests married and had children no differently than anyone else. This changed when the grown heirs of those priests started filing claim to the land on which they were, their particular church was built, which was generally also their home, land which the church had claimed as its own. Thus the new rule, no marriage equals no heirs. It is a doctrine, it is doctrine in the present-day Catholic Church that women cannot be ordained as priests. This too has historical contradictions. When the Black Plague ravaged Europe, the one class hit hardest was the clergy, who worked closely with the victims to help assuage their suffering. It also didn't help matters that they eschewed any practical advice that would have helped protect them on the grounds that such notions were heresy. <laughs> After a while, their ranks were so thoroughly decimated that they had no choice but to start ordaining women as priests just to fill in the gaps. There are even recorded examples of female deacons in the Catholic Church in 5th century church documents. Given that the rules of doctrine do change and have latitude depending on context and historical circumstance, I looked down the, I looked down the road a bit and saw this possibility. At the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church announced its desire to find a way to reconcile and rejoin with the Orthodox 
Anglican, and Protestant churches. Which is all fine and good until you remember that the latter two churches allow the ordination of women. So on the assumption that over the next 200 years this reconciliation might actually take place, and on further assumption that neither the Anglican nor Protestant churches are going to throw out their female priests, then given past flexibility on some of these issues, isn't there a possibility, however remote, that a compromise position might be arrived at, at which would allow these female priests or the practice of ordaining women as priests to be folded into the newly restructured Catholic Church? The answer, in my view, was, yes, it's possible. And if that's possible, then the idea of a female pope becomes at least technically viable. Doesn't mean it's probable, doesn't mean it's going to happen. Just that it's possible and thus as valid as speculating on the eventual development of jump gates. Unlikely, sure, but possible. Yeah, I follow his logic on that, but how he can suggest, oh, it's a historical thing, not a theological thing, when that is so heavily tied to the theology. Yeah, I've actually heard uh, that uh, historically there was once a female pope. Um, yeah. But th that was, you know, a very, very long time ago. In fact, ago. the part of the uh, the ceremony currently to uh, induct a new pope is a direct result of that event. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know historically, you know, how accurate that is or not. I, I'm not a uh, um, an authority on papal ascension. <laughs> Um, or history of, of any regard, uh, but I, I had heard that. Uh, it's just it, for me. <laughs> you're throwing out a lot of theology to okay. to go down that road, and I just when he parses it out as look, I, I get that he isn't making a theological argument here. He's not saying, oh, well, the Catholic Church is you know eventually going to do this because yeah, yeah you know and right. whatever. I get that he's not saying that. I follow his argument, but still, it is so heavily tied to theology that I, to hear someone say something like that, they sound, they sound like idiots <laughs> who who can't understand the Catholic Church well enough to understand that, that you're throwing out a lot of theology okay. to allow something like that. Fair enough. It was just an interesting note that I thought hmm. I wanted to cover. Worthy of uh, of mentioning for sure. Uh, anything else for you? Nope. Okay, we're speeding right into <laughs> comments. Um, Racing Mars from Moneybags. He says, Some great scenes with Garibaldi and Sheridan. I found this plot annoying the first couple of times I watched B5, but I'm liking it more this time around. Instead of focusing on what's going to happen, I'm just enjoying watching the two characters play off of each other. Why are characters who refer to themselves in the third person so annoying? Was it annoying before writers decided to use it as a trait of annoying characters? <laughs> I've never known anyone in real life who talks this way. Oh well, at least they make a joke about it. Well, Joey does know people who talk this way. <laughs> I, I knew someone in high school who did that. And it was annoying. I don't know why, but I think it's just because it, it grates on our normal mode of conversation and so even having a conversation with that person becomes a chore mm -hmm. yeah agreed uh, we get to see diplomacy Ivanova style I love it <laughs> very funny scene but it pales in comparison to woohoo poor Lanier 
<laughs> I bet he had a hell of a talk with Veer after this. <laughs> this scene might be the funniest scene in all of Babylon 5, since it packs so much humor into a scene that's just one word. Uh, sci-fi 7, uh, sorry, TV 7, sci-fi 6. Okay. Yeah. I'm see. Yeah, I. It seems weird that he enjoys it so much. <laughs> I don't hate it, but it's sort of like, eh, okay, let's just get yeah. this done with and move on. I'm more. I'm more with you, as I think the length of this particular recording will indicate. <laughs> <laughs> Mars sucks, from uh, Brainy Smurf. So I can't decide which version I hate worse: Daffy Duck Garibaldi of the past. Emo Garibaldi of last week, or 11-year-old Garibaldi of the present. Sorry, 11-year-old girl Garibaldi of the present. (laughs) What is he? Jealous that he can't come back from the dead too? I wish there was some way to further uncapitalize the name Garibaldi. (laughs) You could shrink it down in font size. I was just thinking the same thing. I'm glad that you didn't. It would make reading it more difficult. Is that good? With that? <laughs> <laughs> and we still have the uh, and we still have Garibaldi the oligarch to look forward to. Ding. <laughs> Doctor and Marcus are married, but who wears the pants in that union? <laughs> Sci-fi four TV three. Okay, uh, that's it. Joey, what do you uh, wait? For science fiction, I gave this a four, only because of the Minbari ritual. Yeah, when I got done watching this, um, at the time, like, I wrote down, I'm like, oh, okay, uh, six. But this is so totally not a six. This is, yeah, at best a four. So I'm gonna, I'm going with you. For television, what do you give it? I give it a three. I don't really enjoy this episode, um... You know, one of the things that one of the listeners mentioned, I just want to cover here really briefly. I actually think Garibaldi kind of has a point here. Uh, the way he's going about it, wrong, stupid, poorly, poorly done on his part. But his the message that he is delivering, there is a danger and a risk in what Sheridan is doing. I th- and I think we're supposed to acknowledge that. I think that it's supposed to be a plausible contention that Garibaldi has here. Yeah, the problem is I can't buy it because everything about Garibaldi is now skewed because of what happened to him by the Psycor. And so I just uh, write it off completely as Garibaldi is screwed up in the head. Okay. And anything that he says is not worth listening to. Hmm. Okay. How they're going to unravel that mess that he's in from Psycor, I don't know. But uh, you know, that's you know, apparently the future be yes. uh, you know holds that up for us. Uh, you gave this a three. I'm going to go right there with you. This is a three for television. I, it, I don't know. I, I really liked Captain Jack, but too much of this was Marcus and Franklin. <laughs> too much of this was uh, Garibaldi uh, acting like. Yeah, kind of a pissy little girl, and it, that got annoying. Okay. Uh, for your P5 rating? 7.73. Moving on to our next episode, Lines of Communication. As Minbar begins to slide towards Civil War, Marcus and Franklin meet with the leaders of the Mars Resistance. 
Uh, all right, I I actually really like this episode. I because of the <laughs> the Minbari side of the story, I'm guessing. Um. Well, we have some Babylon Five parts of okay. the story, though. Okay. No, it's not the Mars stuff. The Mars insurgency. Yeah. That didn't really. Even the whole, you know, I, I did write down a couple of questions, you know. Did Franklin really lie? You know. Ah, uh, yeah, I guess he did. He, 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 certainly inserted, he inserted some stuff that was not in the explicit orders he was given. My question is, do you think he was telling the truth about Sheridan's promise to free Mars? Because we've never heard Sheridan say that on camera. Uh, yeah, you know, that's uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, because it is a big political step right? to do that. Yeah, You're basically drawing the lines right there and saying, okay, Mars, all of you Marsers were right all along. You know, and you guys deserve your own place. I'm actually kind of okay with that. I, I'm okay with it. I just thought it was interesting that the first time we ever hear from it is in a speech which we later are directly informed has falsified accounts in it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know if that's actually something Sheridan ever promised, or if uh, Stephen is going out on a bit of a, you know, limb here. If he's making promises he's not entitled or, to make, or maybe this is Straczynski's way of saying yes, he was planning to free Mars because Franklin said it. And, you know, there was some conversation that the two of them had Certainly. privately. That, that could be the case. I just thought it was interesting that it's introduced that way. Um, I, you know, th- at the very beginning when uh, Franklin is making his call to uh, Babylon 5, he, he uses this phrase, he says, you know, I can't remember, it's like Big Bad Wolf, this is... Yeah, a ridiculous amount of uh, metaphors. Anyway, that, that was not the, the... The part where he says... Do not respond. I repeat, do not respond. And then he gives some message. The only other time I've ever heard that phrase used, the, that, the language, the way that whole message is written from top to bottom, is seems to be a direct lift of lines from Pat Frank's Alas Babylon, which I mentioned in one of my culture corners. And so I don't know if this is supposed to be a direct homage to Alas Babylon, or if that's something that actually comes out of the way military really communicate. But it is such a specific copy of lines of dialogue that are mentioned in hmm. Alas Babylon, with the details changed to fit the Babylon 5 story. Yeah? I, so I, I don't know. I don't know if that is an intentional you call. Know, it could be, and I would tend to think that it probably is, but we did see... You and I used to love watching the television show The Unit. Yeah. We heard them do that a lot. So maybe, you know, that is an oh, actual... That, be, that's yeah. the way military people talk. Okay. But it is so true to form that it was used in Alas Babylon, and Trzinski is then, you know, throwing yeah. up the homage that, to that, it And that's the certainly end. possible. I, it just... Because I had recently reviewed it for Joy's Culture Corner, mm-hmm. it was in my mind, and when I heard this line of, of speech, I thought... Oh, that is just that is so Alas Babylon right there. Yeah, and then with them both having Babylon in the name, I kind of got <laughs> off on a thing. So. 
Um, okay, so I, I guess maybe the last thing I want to talk about here with the Mars thing was, um, you know, the the insurgents or the the free Mars people, they think that uh, humans are expendable. You know, if they get in the way, oh, well, no well, big deal. Well, some of them. Some of them. But what civilians are expendable in fighting a war? Now, I you. want... I, I <laughs> No. <laughs> I'm the leader we must all protect. Um, I'm thinking in regards to... Not specifically a war of insurgency. Or even the Mars War. Uh, I'm not speaking of any specific war. I'm just going to say war. You know? Is... At what level should we be okay with saying, ah, okay, there's going to be some civilian casualty here, 10%. and we're comfortable with with this number, whatever it, whatever it is. You you're Claire, you say ten percent. I, I say that if it's more than ten percent civilian casualties in the action, you do not commit to that action. You find a different way to achieve the goal. So, of the people that would die, if at least 10% of them or more are civilian casualties, then don't do it. Then don't do it. Right. Can you fight a war in that regard? I think you can. Yeah. You, you would have to go to assassination and things like that. Um, but I, I have never really understood why that's not preferable to... A bunch of guys out on the field shooting at each other. You know, why aren't we just assassinating the leaders and letting that be the way? I know, it sounds crazy, and you're giving me this look like I should probably not be saying this stuff out loud. <laughs> but, you know, you you take out the guy who's responsible for the thing that you disagree with. You don't take out everyone who works for him. Well, I would think that you'd have to take out a few more than just one guy. Minimize the casualties. It's, it's not as you know as cut and dry as the Cartagia syndrome. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. I'm just saying it. You know, as, as actually, a, that seems worse because it seems like it would just solidify everyone else. Like, how dare you kill our leader? That's it. You, we're you, we're you gonna come I'm, after you even harder now. You think I'm creating martyrs? Yeah, I, I'm more. I think I would choose the uh, the Philistine Jewish battles more, which is let's all pick our our champion. You know, we'll have this. Okay. We'll all abide whichever comes out here. I like that more than I like the the assassination, assassination thing. Okay, but, and and I don't. I, I would accept that. And I don't like the Philistine Jewish thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just for me, I, I don't know. I don't want to have the war at all. I Ideally, there is no war. I'm with you. I, I don't want to be sending a, a mixed message about that. <laughs> ideally, the war is completely avoided. But if we're having the war, I'd much prefer, you know, and I, I think you're right. The champion system, mm -hmm. I think, works better. Okay. Then, then, you know, let's throw all of our soldiers in a in a combat theater and let's see who kills the most people and that guy wins. <laughs> That is the political philosophy that rules of the day. The one that kills the most people. 
<laughs> well, not necessarily kills the most people, but uh, you know manages to maintain the, enough power that the other side realizes, okay, going against this, you know, this army of people is futile at this point. We have to acquiesce. You know, the force is too strong. We have been beaten. We have been. I, I, th- I think. I think. At the end of the day, we can agree that the current method is suboptimal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. War should be avoided at all costs. I would agree. Uh, you know, I read an interesting article this week that was talking about the uh, the Chinese aircraft carrier that's come online. Are, are you familiar with this? So there's this big uproar in the news media because China has an aircraft carrier now. And it turns out that the aircraft carrier is a derelict USSR aircraft carrier that had been sitting around and the hull was so rotted through... That they had to completely revamp the hull. It's like it's a it's like a 1969 or 1970 era aircraft carrier, and technologically speaking, in every regard, it's completely backwards. And you know, the the, the guy was commenting on the fact that it's really interesting to me that if China has one aircraft carrier, well, clearly they're getting ready to go on the offensive. They are preparing to attack the United States. Like, this is a message that's being portrayed in the media, to some extent. What media? The New York Times? Hmm, so conservative magazine. <laughs> and, and he says, you know, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, everyone is, is terrified that, oh, this means China's ready to become an aggressor. Meanwhile, America has 11 super carriers that are technologically advanced. They have carrier groups. They have nuclear subs that travel with the carrier group. We can rain death on anyone from multiple points on the planet, but clearly we're only doing this to protect ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, he says, you know, there, there's a little bit of uh, incongruity in, in this in this idea. And I, I especially like the way he ended the article as he says, you know, when it comes down to naval might, which for 500 years on Earth was really the focus. I mean, it was, a, it was a primary form of military power, expression of military power. It, America's won. 11 nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but the wars are no longer about that. The war, the war has changed since then. What do you think the war has become? Guerrilla. At every level. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm starting to... We've been tossing this idea around for a while that I think the war is becoming economic. Okay. And I think that we ought to be looking for ways to, if we're actually going to do this, let's economically get in there and start screwing with people, (laughs) with their countries. (laughs) I'm not saying that this is the right decision. Yeah, I'm just saying that there's those things that if you ever want a political career, you probably shouldn't say into the microphone. <laughs> I don't Let, want a political career. I really don't. <laughs> let's go. Let's go out there and screw with other people's economies. Let's print their money no. and flood. Them. <laughs> I, what I'm saying is, if you were going to go after somebody, I think economically is really the stronger way to go about this. It seems like you could do it. M- more subtly than a frontal assault. Yeah? I see your point. You know what? Um, 
But, I mean, still, that's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing to do. Avoid war at all costs. Human life is sacred. Don't destroy human life. Well, yeah, but no, economically, you're not actually destroying human life. You, you're, you're, I, you're, the way I see things playing out, we are. You, we, you're we destroying are going human to. lives, <laughs> <laughs> but not you know the the sustenance of life itself, but just the comfort level and the things like that. That's interesting. I'm gonna have to get some people on that, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> what have I created? Okay, um, so here is an interesting thought. We've been talking about war. How do you win a propaganda war? And it's clear that that's what we are in right now. Yeah. It's not going to come to fisticuffs uh, just yet between Earth and Babylon 5. But they are very much fighting a war of, uh, of, words. of words against uh, Earth. And Earth is kicking their butt. They have, as far as I can tell, complete control. Yeah, they're taking this out behind the woodshed here. Yeah. So, how do you win a propaganda war? And the the one thought I came up with was, I'm not sure anyone officially wins a propaganda war. (laughs) Everyone loses. (laughs) (laughs) What I think really happens is, somebody just continues to talk loud enough and long enough that the other side stops. Because of some sort of extenuating, extenuating circumstances... Whether it be, you know, the actual application of force through uh, military might or, you know, in, in my screwed up situation where I introduce economic warfare, <laughs> you know, the, the, eventually the other side is sort of like, uh, okay, well, we don't have any more, you know, we don't have any more ways of fighting this and, you know, we're just going to close down the propaganda war now. So that's the only thing I could think of, which is you just last longer than the other guy. And you, you know, obviously you try and convince more people. Yeah. Because I'm convinced that people are sheep. They're just going to... You say things long enough and loud enough, (laughs) and people are going to start to believe it. You just start podcasting it, and pretty soon you have some (laughs) listeners writing in. (laughs) Although one of our listeners is AWOL. One? <laughs> well, I'm thinking of JD. I mean, he started the Facebook group, and now he's gone completely off of Facebook. Last time you heard from Contributor Jim. Well, he was never on Facebook, though. Oh, okay. And we know why Jim's yeah, not, yeah. because Babylon 5 is not his cup of tea. Anyway. That, that's a good question. I don't know I don't know how you win one. I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of, of a solution to it, and... I think you're probably right. It just it either eventually escalates to the to actual fisticuffs. I think was the word you used <laughs> earlier, <laughs> which you know wouldn't be a much better solution. <laughs> the Queen, what is it? The Marquis of Queensbury rules. <laughs> um. Oh, anyway, so within the episode, Sheridan comes up with an idea, which is. The voice of the resistance, which is going to be voiced by Ivanova. Yeah. And um, she is, you know, they're going to turn the war room into the... A broadcast center. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Fox News. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, okay, well... I'm, I, I throw that out because the only 
really interesting note I found in the script book for this episode was uh, one last note on this episode the manner in which the President Clark controlled ISN's slogan our job as always is simply to state the facts and let the truth attend to itself anticipates the later created Fox News line we report you decide is strictly coincidental but utterly appropriate <laughs> <laughs> So, I wrote down in this episode, and I know this comes up in the next one, because they they started thinking about, okay, how are we going to get past the jammers? How are we going to manage to broadcast this back home so people can use this? I thought to myself, why don't you just use the planet to broadcast the signal? Oh, you thought of Epsilon 3, huh? Oh, yeah. Nice. Way to go. I, I absolutely thought of it. I was like, if Epsilon 3 can manage to make a time stream <laughs> that can send Babylon 4 back in time, I think it's got some power to, you know, broadcast a low-watt frequency back home to Earth. <laughs> I think it's got something it can really pump out. Good job thinking of that. Yeah. All right. I, I, it just seemed to me like, that sh- like that's, that's the solution right then and there. I don't know. It felt like it. I think that was the easy I, I think more, I think more viewers than you probably tend to forget that Babylon Five is orbiting a planet. Mm. Yeah, I have forgotten that in times past. Um, we meet the Drock. Yes, uh, I'm sure glad it stayed blurry the whole time because that did not look like their best costume. I don't know. It kind of looked like a little Skeletor guy. I, I appreciated it. I couldn't tell if it actually had hands. Or if they were just sort of like these... What was with the way it moved, anyway? Did that drive you as crazy as it drove me? It's like dancing as it goes down. It was like breakdancing. <laughs> it wasn't breakdancing. It, it was just the way that, uh, you know, that it seemed like they were out of phase with everything else uh, around it. And, you know, it just sort of like we couldn't see it properly, so we can't see it move properly. Okay. Um, so, the, the Drock are there. And we've, we've come to find out the Mimbari politics are falling apart. Um, and Mimbari have been attacking, not attacking outrightly, but forcing out. Evicting. Other yeah. Mimbari. And it, it's basically, it's the the warrior caste who's been doing this. They're becoming the bullies in the Mimbari culture now. Becoming? <laughs> <laughs> Nehrun, come on, man. <laughs> and Nehrun tur- changed. He changed. He was better. Anyway, there, there's no great council anymore to really watch over this stuff. Um, so the uh, the let's see here, that guy Pharrell. He has kind of signed up with the Drock, yeah, a little bit because he feels like, okay, look, these are the guys who can help us. Why he felt like he needed to turn to them, I don't know, yeah. but whatever he did, I think they came to him. Okay. I get the sense that they came to him. At any rate, he chooses to go with them. Once again, the question comes up in my mind: Was he a traitor? Unintentionally, perhaps. I don't think you have to because there didn't seem to be any malicious thought behind his actions. Right. His decisions to try and bring them bring in the Drock weren't to supplant himself as the new leader of the Minbari, it was to protect Minbari against the warrior caste. 
and to to try and set things even again. But he was doing so in a way that he knew terribly. I, would I, not I'm go not, over well. I'm not sure he realized just how evil the Drock were. Well, whether or not he realized how evil the Drock were, he knew how wrong his own actions were, or he would not have pulled a gun on Dolan. He knew he was doing something wrong. Yeah, I get that he's yeah he's on thin ice. I get that. I, I would say that that right there to to me would I would classify him as a traitor for that. Okay. Um. He said something in there that I wanted to respond to, and I've forgotten what it was. Um. Oh no, I was gonna, I was going to say, am I the only one that feels like this extra who plays this guy really needed a nap? His eyelids are like half closed the whole time. And then as he's dying, what? he's laying on the ground. He doesn't ever open his eyes. He has this long conversation with the Lynn as he lays there dying. <laughs> has his eyes closed. And I thought, I don't know if this guy is just like... I didn't even notice. ...was tired that day and he just needed a nap before doing the scene? Or, or, or what's going on here? He, he Go back and watch the scene. Just that one scene because... You know what? I think you and I have benefited... From a from a healthy nap before sure, our podcast. Absolutely. What's, why, what's wrong with him doing I'm that? I'm just wondering why the director didn't say, cut, you know, go, go catch five wings, man. <laughs> Come back. Because he's standing, he, he, he looks like he's like he's forcing his eyelids. You know, you've been at that point, right, where you're so tired, you're actually like moving your head back to try and keep the eyes open. <laughs> That's what he looks like he's doing. And he's got his eyelids like really droopy. And then as he's laying there dying... He has a long conversation with Dylan. Eyes closed the entire time. <laughs> uh, okay, so the Drock attack the White Stars. The White Stars flee eventually, due you know due to um, Lanier's prayer. Quick uh, <laughs> learning of skin dancing. No, he t- he programmed it in the computer and said, "Do that skin dancing thing." <laughs> yeah, that that's better. Sure, let the AI do it. Uh, anyway, they, they leap out, and then Delenn's like, no, we're not leaving. I don't get that. I didn't like that. You like that? I, I didn't like it. It just... I, I, it it kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense, because at that point, they were being chased down. They had no... They were in a completely defensive posture. They were just running. Now that they're coming back in, they can come back in at a point that they can control. This is now them on the offensive, and they can come back and put together a proper like fight against them. Whereas before, they're just like, um, we don't really, we're not in a good position here, we just need to regroup. So that's her regroup within hyperspace, which, can you fight a war in hyperspace? That'd be interesting. Well, we know you can fire weapons in hyperspace. You, you can, you definitely can. Anyway, so she flies back in there, they take on the the big ship, and that explosion on the the Drock ship, the big one, was lame. Okay, I didn't care for it. I, I didn't find it especially memorable either way. Yeah. Um, okay, then Delenn comes back to Babylon Five, and she basically tells Sheridan, "Hey, I, I've got to go back. I need to attend to my people right now. Th- this has got to be fixed." Yeah. Um, she, I think she makes a comment about how she's talking to the human, uh, to Sheridan. She talks about how we build communities. Humans form communities, and nobody else does. Yeah. I found that bizarre. 
Like, really, really kind of just bizarre. But all the other races in the galaxy None are isolationist. Yeah, that doesn't make sense at all to me. Okay. Alright. You're not going to try and defend it. I, I, I don't hold it up as one of the shining moments of Babylon 5, but it's... The reason that that line is there, admittedly, it's poorly done, but I think the goal behind it was noble, which is to say... As humans, we should focus on our ability to create communities rather than our ability to be divisive. I think that was the intent. Uh, okay. The, me- the mechanic, not necessarily great. All right. Uh, comments? Listener comments. Lines of communication killing the truth. <laughs> From Brainy Smurf. This episode is chopped flarn. I thought that uh, Kalen and Pharrell were the same smudgy bonehead. He or they is, are, noxiously whiny. So he was in league with the out-of-focus Skeletor dude. (laughs) What an entrance, by the way. um, Oh, sorry, what an entrance, by the way. And Delenn follows the example laid out by the Shadow as the Drock are annihilated. Kill them all, Delenn. Do you think Minbari listened to Metallica? Now we're going to have to cut that because uh, we don't have rights to, to sing that uh, Metallica song. I, I, I think that you know we're within fair use there. <laughs> fair use? I don't think so. It, it was such a short clip. I think oh, we're covered. Okay. I thought you were referencing the, uh, you know, it's been out for so long now that no, we no, can no, use I, it. I was not public domain. Right. It was my misunderstanding, clearly. Um Boy, they should be listeners of Metallica. That would really give them an interesting... Like, as one of their ceremonies, they all get together and have this, you know, listen to Metallica or some sort of mosh pit where they just <laughs> grind out their, you know... Uh, um, aggression? Aggression and anger. That'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I don't see a, a Matrix Reloaded scene happening anytime soon. <laughs> that turned out so weird, didn't it? They yeah. like turned into this like orgy. orgy. <laughs> it's like, huh? Well, I guess we're away from uh, the Matrix now. Anyway, back to uh, this. Meanwhile, back on both Mars and Babby Five, Vive la Resistance reminds me of the South Park movie. Maybe this story arc inspired Trey Parker to write the epic song La Resistance. For the movie, which would be released two years after this episode's original air date. Or maybe it was Les Miserables. The idea of Marcus, the celibate romantic, is disturbing. Especially as he voyeurs it up during the last scene. <laughs> I never read that that way. <laughs> I didn't either. I felt like he was more like, oh, crap, I have to... S- nah. Why do I get stuck with Dr. Love? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. Blah, blah, blah. On the other hand, I met a nun years ago on a greyhound. Wow. Who takes greyhound anymore? <laughs> I have. I've taken greyhound as well. I'm just saying, who does it anymore? Uh, and she told me many crazy stories. As we cruised up Highway 1, I respectfully asked her if it was difficult to live a sexless, monastic lifestyle. She said that celibacy is not for everyone. Wise words. She continued to point out that she did indeed have a marriage to Jesus. Catholic nuns, in fact, 
do get married to Jesus during their official initiation ritual. She also added that one would be surprised how difficult it is to have the Almighty for a husband. He is omniscient, so it's hard to make excuses when it comes to duties and obligations. <laughs> Procrastinating is out of the question. Furthermore, it's very hard to cook for a uh, pescatarian. P-E-S-C-A-T-A-R-I-A-N. Let me uh, underline this here. Anyway, he finishes out, he also never does the dishes. Sci-Fi 6, TV 5. Pescatarian. Pescatarian. You have any idea? No. (laughs) You can pronounce it, but you don't know what it means. I I, I can look at the root and say... (laughs) (laughs) Alright, well thanks for at least that. Okay, uh, let's see here. Lines of communication from Moneybags. Sometimes I forget how scary Delenn gets when she's mad. Why does the show res, uh, res, why does she show res, restraint this time? Of all the races to start a holy war against, the Drac Drac would probably be my first choice. I guess she's gun shy after wiping almost wiping out humanity. You know, it occurred to me that although Londo and Delenn are very different, if you compare her actions to Londo's, they might be more similar than you think. Londo almost caused the destruction of the Narn. Delenn almost caused the destruction of humanity. Londo screwed up the Centauri government while his allies made Cartagia emperor. Delenn screwed up her government by breaking the Grey Council. Londo was suckered in by the shadows and their promises of power. Delenn was suckered in by the Vorlons and their prophecy. Of course, Delenn, they... um, of course, Delenn, they are very different people, but both believe they are acting for the greater good. That's a good sum That up. is a really good... Yeah. I, I think he's got a really good point there to, to indicate that we look at Delenn as almost near perfect. Even me, <coughs> excuse me, me after having watched the, the Dreaming episode, I still look at her and I think, okay, yeah, she's still a really good person. She's you know, good. And we look at, I look at Londo and I still think, boy, you are still the tainted, dirty boy at the table. I I think that part of the problem is even after all the mistakes that he's made, Londo still clearly wants all the Narn wiped out. He said that. He wants them all dead. Not necessarily through orbital mass driver bombings, but he doesn't believe that there's any way for there to be peace for the Centauri while the Narn are still alive. While Delin is actively sol- seeking peaceful solutions mm. to what's going on. And actually, we, you know, when we get to the series wrap-up, it'd be interesting if we can come back and talk about this. Because there is stuff coming in future episodes that will address exactly that. Mm. Meanwhile, back on Mars, they call me... Dr. Love. (laughs) I have to admit, even I'm calling him Dr. Love at this point. (laughs) I've got the cure you're thinking of. Sorry. Anyway, Franklin's much less annoying now that he actually has something to do. And it seems like Marcus makes any story (laughs) more fun. (laughs) Especially his line about Franklin locking himself in the bathroom all night. One final note. 
the drock looked ridiculous. It was stumbling around like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean. And did it say its homeworld was named Home? <laughs> Yeesh. TV6, Sci-Fi 7. Okay. Pete, your science fiction rating. I actually kind of like the drock. You didn't. Neither of the commenters did. <laughs> uh, I like them. They looked creepy. They were off-putting. Which was, in my opinion, the whole point. And their ships look kind of shadowy and menacing. You know, they don't look inviting and warm. No, they are—they look like fish hooks that uh, are floating around in space shooting lasers at you. <laughs> um, so I think that the Drock is a good introduction for, okay. you know, a new, you know, evil player on the block. Um, and I liked a lot of the, the other stuff. I didn't love the, you know, the Mars insurgency stuff, but it did bring up some interesting ideas. Um, and then we have the, um, the white stars fighting in a space battle. I thought that was good. So I'm going to give this a seven. Okay. I also give it a seven. As much as I (laughs) make fun of the drock there, I think you make, I think you make the right points that, you know, the, the ships are pretty cool and yeah, it's. It's supposed to look alien and kind of weird. I mean, all I was trying to say was, I think if we had gotten a focused shot of the thing, <laughs> it would have looked like the Zarg. I'm pretty sure it may, it may actually have been in the Zarg costume, and they just didn't ever focus on it. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have gone through all of that explanation if I had thought that you were, you were going to agree with me on that. I really thought you were going to come much lower on the sci-fi. I, I enjoyed making you sit through that. <laughs> um, so for television, um, I'm actually going to give this a six. Uh, for television, I'm going to give it a four. I think the Drock are going to be too off-putting to people who aren't into science fiction. Hmm. Man, and, maybe you're right. And I think the uh, Franklin and, and Marcus <laughs> storyline is just terrible. Yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. I'll amend mine now. I'll come down to a five at least. Uh, the P5 rating is 8.30. Moving on to our next episode, Conflicts of Interest. Sheridan and Garibaldi's disagreements come to a head as the voice of the Resistance comes online. All right. Okay, I want to start with the script book here. All right. J. Michael Straczynski says, I thought I'd lead off this one with yet another Babylon 5 synchronicity. These are the occasions where what he wrote in the script actually took place in the real world somehow. After writing all night and getting to bed around 4 a.m., the phone rang from the stage at 8 a.m. I picked up the phone and mumbled into the business end of the receiver. That may not seem like much of an accomplishment to you, but after getting just three hours of sleep... I was doing a good job not to mumble into the business end of the cat. You did it to us again, the voice on the other end of the phone announced. I asked. And they told me. The first scene to be shot that day was the sequence with Franklin and Ivanova as she laments the difficulties in getting the voice of the resistance into motion. Her line in considering how to bridge the broadcast range to Earth was was this. Just one thing we don't have. Power. In preparing to shoot that scene, everyone was gathered on set for rehearsal. Claudia said that line out loud, and at that exact moment, the power to the stages went dead. And stayed dead. The shooting company eventually had to go out, rent a third-party generator, and bring it back in order to supply the needed power to stage C, so that we could shoot a scene about not having power. 
the solution to which was to bring in power from a third party. When the scene was done, the power came back on. Jeez. For the rest of the day, some members of the cast and crew considered it eminently amusing to cross themselves whenever they passed by my office <laughs> or when I stepped out onto the stage. Claudia's reaction was simpler and more to the point. What the hell is it with you anyway? <laughs> I just thought that was funny. <laughs> it was funny. Um, okay, so Garibaldi is a hero. I don't buy sort this of. thing. Does that not seem like just the fakest, most artificial... Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, we need something to still make us actually like Garibaldi because everything else we've seen, we're starting to hate him. Well, what I'm saying is this made me hate Garibaldi even more. He he, he forces this <laughs> artificial <laughs> reunion <laughs> moment so that I he can leak a little bit of enjoyment out of it. I was okay with it. Oh, all right. Okay. Uh, but Garibaldi is still an ass <laughs> to Zach. Um, okay, just for the record... In in an equivalent circumstance between you and I, I would want my friend to be the one coming to deliver it. I thought so. Matter of fact, I wrote down the question, would you want me to come take your gun? Yes. I think so. If the government is going to come arrest it, me and put me away from my crimes, I hope they send you in as the negotiator. Yeah, because then that's the person you can say, okay, I actually trust you. I don't see you as a betrayer. Never mind the fact that, yes, I will be betraying you. You're you're going to try and do it with a little bit of compassion. Yes. Mm. Well, maybe not you and I exactly, but I'm saying in general, the principle. (laughs) (laughs) What I found a little ridiculous in all of this is Garibaldi doesn't have a spare PPG. It seems like you can pick up a PPG almost anywhere as we've run into them all over the place. Well, these are military issues. Okay, fine. But he makes it a big deal at the end where he's like, yeah, I just I had my PPG taken away from me. It's a long story. Really? He doesn't have his own personal PPG. Well, the, that, that is incongruous no. with who Garibaldi is. I got you. I see what you're saying. I, I think that you took the wrong thing. Or at least I disagree with your interpretation there. He is just trying to find something to whine about because... He's using that as a defense for why there are two guys dead. He's like, oh, well, if I would have had my PPG, that scene would have played out completely differently. The thing is, he had a PPG at that point. He had taken it off of one of the other guys. So we're not supposed to believe that Garibaldi actually thinks the PPG would have made a difference. It's that it's just one more thing for me to Mm. be a whiner about. All right. Yeah. Yeah, he is a bit of a punk. Uh, I like the scene between Franklin and Ivanova where Franklin immediately sees to the heart of the problem. You know, hey, go down to Epsilon 3. And I love Ivanova's reaction. Like, I've I've had that before where I'm like, oh, jeez, I have been staring at this code for three days. And you came over, you looked at the code, and in two and a half seconds said, oh, well, why don't you change that thing right there and it'll all work. I'm like, oh, man, how dumb am I? (laughs) Okay, I agree we've all been in that situation before. I, too, have had that happen, literally with code, as I forgot to close it with a semicolon. Okay. Like, frick. No wonder it's not going to work. It's not closed (laughs) properly. But neither you nor I would walk away from that as Ivanova did, which is, oh, yeah, that's right. That's totally exactly what I was going to do. I think she was trying to be funny. I, I didn't. No. Okay. No. Poor 
Um, Zathras is back? No. Zathras is back. Zathras. Slight difference. And I was just pleased to be able to see him come back in here at least one more time. Yeah. Because I like the character. I want to see the rest of them. (laughs) Really interesting note in the script book here where uh, J. Michael Straczynski said, you know, I I love Tim Kohate, who who plays the character of Zathras. He says, the thing is, the guy was so good at disappearing into the makeup of of Zathras that any time we met and he was out of makeup, I, I, I couldn't figure out who he was. (laughs) <laughs> there were several different rap parties where the guy had to come up and reintroduce himself to me because I was like, "No, wait, tell me who you are again." <laughs> <laughs> well, that can be no higher, uh, you know. Um, on the other compliment. Hand, on the other hand, haven't you ever had to introduce yourself to someone and thought, "What a jerk!" The guy didn't even bother to remember me. <laughs> no, not for me because I habitually forget people's names. So. Okay. I totally understand when somebody forgets mine, I am A-OK. Plus, nobody's ever forgot my name. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, P-Tep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we have uh, more Garibaldi here. Um, wait, why is Garibaldi even still in the system? Yeah, I, I don't get that. didn't make sense. Because Zach doesn't want to... Take him out? Take him I, out. I don't know. I, okay, fine. Um, we have the return of Lise. Yeah. Which I didn't care that much about. Um, okay. One of my pet peeves, which is in movies, we see ventilation shafts (laughs) used in, you know, the most sturdy, well-built things ever. (laughs) Almost (laughs) bunker-like. Okay, number one, they're not that big. They're not. They aren't... Children, maybe, could use them. Maybe when you're building a space station, you make them alternate maintenance access. <laughs> okay, maybe. Okay. Maybe. Seems like you make a retractable roof that you can get into that thing. <laughs> but never mind. Never mind. Second thing is, they aren't that sturdy that you can just go plopping along through them yeah. and expect them to stay up. That is not going to happen. And I really wish that television, that movies would stop sending people up in that. Unless they're willing to explain beforehand how when when this building was made, they decided to make extra large (laughs) ventilation shafts and they reinforced them with concrete. So you can literally run up and down them. So let, let me... I, I'm not defending the decision here. <laughs> Good, because you wouldn't have a leg to stand th- there's on. There's an interesting reason why this <laughs> scene was shot. I, I, I get the sense that Straczynski normally would agree with you, but... Something that the Babylon 5 cast members have often commented upon is the fact that I would always try to listen to their conversation and learn things about them that could be inserted into episodes to give our stories a greater sense of verisimilitude. Most days, this played to their benefit, expanding and enhancing their characters. At other times, not so much. Frankly, it was a bit like playing Russian roulette with me. Take, for instance, the day the cast and I were sitting around the lunch table and somebody, it might have been Pat, brought up the topic of phobias. It was in the course of the following discussion that Jerry mentioned that he has an absolute terror of closed, tight spaces. (laughs) 
a real problem with claustrophobia. As soon as I heard this, I quietly pulled out my pen and made the following notation on my lunch napkin, which I'm looking at now. It says, shove Garibaldi in an air duct at first opportunity. <laughs> wow. I would punch him in the face. <laughs> if he had tried to stick me in some place that had snakes, I would walk off. <laughs> I would quit. I, I, you know, I think that there's a difference between your fear of snakes and, and Garibaldi's, or Jerry Doyle's fear of, of air ducts. Wow. Okay, maybe. Which, for those who may have wondered, was precisely why Garibaldi ended up in exactly that scenario in this episode. Even though the duct would only be three-walled so that we could get a camera down in there, I knew he would absolutely hate being confined into that tight of space, which meant in turn that his performance would have a sense of reality to it. So, there you go. Oh. What about rubber snakes? What if he made you be around a bunch of rubber snakes? Uh, no. <laughs> Still not okay. Okay. Still will, not okay. I will take that off the list of, yeah. of birthday surprises for Pete. Don't mm-hmm. drop rubber snakes on him. <laughs> birthday surprises, um... Yeah, let's just leave that alone. <laughs> Never mind. Um, okay, so he recognizes that, you know, they are... Psychic? Well, hold, hold link. On. Before this even happens, how are they able to melt through a blast door with their PPGs before security can get there and respond to, oh, there are PPGs going off in this area. People are dying. Uh, does security register when a PPG goes off? Well, certainly I'm sure someone called. I don't know. We didn't hear any of the our <laughs> you know right. heroes yeah. call. Somehow he senses that they're psychic. The real question to me is, why didn't he just shoot that guy's head as soon as it pops up through the vent? I don't know either, and I don't know why that uh, psychic uh, uh, doesn't person shoot doesn't shoot him. They stare at each other with guns. Yeah, it's sort of like I, I can get uh, why the telepath doesn't kill him. I why get that? Because he can tell that he's not going to shoot, and they're not actually after Garibaldi. They're after Lise. Alright. If I can read your mind, and I know you're not going to shoot me, and I'm not really after you anyway, I will move on and go to the target that I'm really after. I think that's plausible. Mm. Why Garibaldi is not going to shoot the guy the second that head pops up, I don't understand. Yeah. Alright, so... uh, Anyway, they managed to win out. Uh, Garibaldi helps to get them arrested by having, you know, a security guy contact Zach... But, unfortunately, the cyanide-filled tooth is still popular in 2260. Yeah, I thought the same thing. Like, cyanide pills still used in the future. Because I guess that's the quickest way to end yourself. Yeah. It's actually not that quick. Oh, it isn't? <laughs> not that quick. <laughs> I've always had it portrayed that way in any movie that I've watched. I've always felt like it happens instantaneously. I actually came pretty close to dying of cyanide poisoning once. <laughs> it took several hours for me to even start to feel sick. <laughs> oh, dang it. Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yes, you failed again. <laughs> and I know it was you. It was uh, up at the mine, right? Yeah. When well, you were at the mine. When I was working at a gold mine, we yeah. used cyanide in the process of collecting the gold. And uh, I happened to leave my truck window's rolled down and they were filling the cyanide hopper and it was it was in powder form and it got into the seats i got in at night rolled the windows up and had the recirculating heater on and just about killed myself it came very very close to being unrecoverable boy you are stupid (laughs) man um okay 
Garibaldi, because of all of this, gets offered a job, and he's interested. Yeah. Um, and then we have the first broadcast of the Resistance. Comment? Listen to comments. Okay. Uh, money bags. Okay, here's where the Garibaldi story starts to annoy me again. He's a jerk to Zack for absolutely no reason. His PBG and Comlink are EarthGov property. He has absolutely no right to keep them. None. I bet if Zack had refused to do it, Garibaldi would have chastised him for not having the guts to come face him. And why do they need Garibaldi's identicard? Isn't this the equivalent of a driver's license? They should be able to update the computer system to revoke his security access without taking the card. Also, Garibaldi's very paranoid about Sheridan, but not Wade and his followers? <laughs> he agrees to break the law for someone he's just met. Ivanova's speech made for a great ending, especially the last line, The truth is back in business. And you can imagine a Zathras family, and can you imagine a Zathras family reunion? There's a sitcom in there somewhere. <laughs> Actually, Jim Michael Susinski mentioned in the script book, I always wanted to write a Zathras show. Oh, no. Where that was like the Zathras family reunion or something. He says, the problem is, no one would have enjoyed it except for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it would have been terribly hard to put that together, considering there's only one actor for Zathras. It would have been some cool camera work. <laughs> Ty, uh, TV5, Sci-Fi 4. Uh, there was a question in there. Could you repeat it? I was going to answer it. Um, there were several. Okay, so start repeating them. I'll tell you which one it is. Um, can you imagine a Zathras family reunion? No, nope, earlier than that. Um, yes, I can. Garibaldi, very paranoid about Sheridan, but oh, why not did they need to get his followers. Card? Why did they need to get his card? Because his card identifies him as military personnel. The card on the mm -hmm. on the on the face of it is going to say, "Oh, this is a this is a member of the right. Air Force military." Okay, so they just need to reissue him a proper yes. identity. And he actually tells Zach, "Oh, I've already gone." He's, in fact, he even says, "I've gotten a civilian identity card in the yeah. meantime, so it's not a big deal." Okay, uh, on to uh, Brainy Smurf. A conversation between the dirt and Zathras. <laughs> the dirt. Dude, only one scene? What's up with that? Despite much tryings and efforts, and only one scene for Zathras, Zathras gives much apologizings that his nephew, Zathras, could not save this crappy episode. Zathras was saying it would never work. But Zathras was thinking, maybe one scene be so good that the whole <laughs> of all bad scenes with stupid actors also be okay. Zathras was wrong. Much apologizing. You see, Zathras gets paid by the hour. And so cheap. And so cheap is the Joe that he only let Zathras have screen time of four minutes. But since Zathras is... Zathras agent, not good. He's his own agent. The dirt. Bummer, man. So, what do you think of the Mars thing? Zathras hates stupid Marsies. But Zathras happy that Zathras reveal how Zathras family pronunciation is much like Chinese languages. Zathras speaks Mandarin. Four favorite Chinese words is he, 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 and he. <laughs> Which meanings is Harmony, to drink, and, and, and to drink. 
So from the all ten Zathras family tree, we say, Hui Tao Zhan, Man Ji Man Yong. English translation, See you later. Take your time to enjoy the meal. <laughs> Sci-Fi 6, TV 5, Zathras 47. <laughs> my, boy, my throat that is a, killing that me. That a good Zathras, man. <laughs> It hurts to do that because you need just the right amount of uh, gravel. Uh, yeah, in the throat to help keep it lubricated, but give it the the scratchiness. Yeah, you did great, man. So that's hard on the voice. All I, all I needed was a. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wasn't in the script. Okay. <laughs> I, I think those were improvised. <laughs> stop giving Brainy Smurf ideas, otherwise he's gonna put it in. <laughs> He'll make up some weird conversation for me to have with Zog somehow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> science fiction. Uh, for science fiction, I'm going to give this one a six. Okay. I give it a five. Okay. Television? Television, I give it a three. Ugh. It is too much about Garibaldi being a whiny... Uh, I believe you used the word pissant earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall using that word. <laughs> Oh, maybe that was me <laughs> in my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um, okay, for me, television, I, I originally put down a five, but again, I'm not understanding why. I guess I just thought, compared to all of the rest of these episodes that I watched this week, it sort of like, mediocre. yeah, middle of the road, yeah, no, it's okay, yeah. But you're right, this is a three. The uh, P5 rating is 8.06. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag trekwest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So, until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.